You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and try to figure out what's going on with it. Um, sometimes come up with some sensible observations. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. With that in mind, uh, last week, what did we talk about? I have had a long week. Yeah, no, it, it's been that way everywhere. Uh, basically, we talked about how the creation of Israel as sacred space kind of uh, mirrored the original creation story and the creation of the Garden of Eden as sacred space, which, um, by the way, if y'all guys haven't listened to uh, Answers and Gi- Answering Giant Questions with uh, Tim Stedman and Chris, and I hate the fact I forget Chris's last name, uh, you know it, don't Chris you? Chris Bather. Thank you. It's not that we don't love him. I just am bad with names. And so anyway, they've been talking about that some on their podcast too. So if you want to explore that further, by all means, uh, a lot of this stuff is actually going to kind of fall in line with their things. So, yeah, we, 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 do, uh, we do like Chris, um, although I do feel like he kind of <laughs> snuck into the Raven Creek Social Club family. I was not informed that, that TJ was going to have a co-host. <laughs> so I don't know. Chris, you're on uh, you're on probation, I think. No, I... <laughs> uh, but no, that's a fun podcast to listen to. Oh, so great. I mean, you know, and plus you get to listen to the accents, and you know, we all love listening to someone with an accent. So because um, you know, Nathan, and I don't have one at all. Um, but uh, I guess it anyhow, depends on where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they're going to be. They talk a lot about that and different things, and it's just really fun. And we're also going to be talking about giants. So of course, obviously. I mean, that falls into their bailiwick there. Um, but now we're getting into, uh, we started into Second uh, Samuel 21 again. We were looking at this really interesting um, conclusion of this chapter. And we were going to be talking about some problems with this chapter because there's a multitude of problems with these verses. And we're going to talk about how you reconcile them. Uh, how Should you reconcile these accounts? Because there's some contradictions. I know I, somebody just gasped. Oh, the Bible has contradictions. Yes, yes, it does. As we have it in its current form, it has contradictions, guys. Don't let that destroy your faith. It's not the end of the world. It just shows that people were involved in the process. And the fact that it's intact as it is, is amazing. So I, I can't overstate that enough. Because... Well, and it, it, it also kind of shows, I mean, it shows that people were involved, and I know we talk about this a lot, but it's a really important point that mm-hmm. that we need to clarify, but it shows that people were involved. It also kind of shows that people were thinking about it, because one mm-hmm. of the biggest criticisms that we tend to get, uh, being people of faith, is that we just blindly accept everything and don't think about it. Well, obviously we're not some doing do. that. Some <laughs> well, do. Well, there, there are some people who do that, and and there is there is something to be said for for that kind of faith um but what a lot of what gets a lot of what people are seeing is not what goes on you know with within the 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 studying time within the university within what's going on with the translators and the, of course what's funny is like 
people would act like it's some kind of big secret. But I guarantee you, if you were to ask these uh, the academics and the translators and people like that, if you showed an interest in what they were doing, they would probably tell you every little tiny detail they could think of that you would find interesting. Um, More so, than you wanted to know. Oh, because you know, yeah. <laughs> people don't do this because they woke up one day and went, I'm bored. Let me think of how I can complicate my life. They, they do it because they have a passion, that they have this drive and this real heart for being able to transmit, not just translate, but to transmit the information mm -hmm. accurately and with integrity. And, you know, I think one of the things that we, we've kind of fallen into the trap of is that if you have faith, well, then you don't have questions. And that's not true. Uh, sometimes faith is the most evident in the presence of a question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, if you have the answers, why do you need faith? I mean, um, probably a really bad example. Um, but if anyone remembers back the Keanu Reeves, uh, movie, um, Const uh, Constantine. Const yeah. And yeah. So if, uh, it's been out several years. So if this is a spoiler for you, I'm sorry. Uh, you should have watched the movie already. Uh, but you know, he had tried to commit suicide and he had gone to hell in the movie. And he makes this statement, and it's such a great statement uh, that um, I think a lot of us can kind of um, understand, wrap our minds around. He, he says he can't go to heaven because he doesn't have faith. And the reason why he doesn't have faith is because he knows. And that you can't have faith if you know, if it's a certainty. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the theological issues that the movie actually attempts to grapple with. Uh, what, how well they do it is up for debate. But the idea that you can actually have questions in faith, and, you know, I know that a lot of times on this podcast, we're talking about these questions, and I'm trying to propose some answers, and I'm saying, okay, here's some solutions, and here's ways that we can talk about it. And, you know, that seems very helpful, or maybe, maybe it gives the very false impression that I have all the answers. I don't. But I do want to say there's this really cool thing that has happened over and over again, where there has been a point or an element within the Bible that has completely confused me that I didn't have a good answer for, and I just had to accept it on faith. And this is one of those times when God has been really good to me, because almost usually by the time I get to that point where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to have to accept it. That's what God says. I can operate in faith. I'm going to trust that it's true even if I don't have a good understanding of why it's true. And sometime within the next two to three weeks, I will read an article, I'll encounter somebody who, who's wrestled with a similar issue, and it's like, boom, all of a sudden it makes sense. So sometimes we do just have faith. We don't have to have all the, the ways it works out and all the whys and hows, and I'm not suggesting that we need that. But that doesn't mean we should stop asking the questions either. So it, we kind of have to find that balance mm -hmm. and not, not just get lazy at our faith and go, well, you know, that's what the Bible says. And so I'm okay with it. You know, there's some things in the Bible you shouldn't be okay with. And what I, I guess I had to qualify that uh, because there's things in the Bible to disturb us, to kind of jar us from our complacency and to make us think. And th there's a purpose in that. It's not without some kind of reasoning and logic. God has a design in that. And so if you encounter something in the Bible that, excuse me, that bothers you, then don't run from that. Don't, don't think that, well, it means I can't believe any of it or I can't accept any of it is true. It just means that you need to dig deeper and, you know, seek out some people, talk about it. You don't, don't shy away from the hard things because it's by engaging those hard things that your faith really can begin to grow in different ways than it would otherwise. 
So anyway, that's my little, you know, two cent rant because <laughs> we, we did kind of have that, um, there's several churches I've been to that's had that mentality of you just don't question. And mm-hmm. that's, that's not true. And I don't want to leave the impression that, Oh, wait a minute. They've got all the answers. Cause she went to seminary seminarians. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, if you don't really want to know your Bible, it just means you got a piece of paper. Congratulations. I've got 20 million of them in my house. You want one? I'll share. So <laughs> anyhow, um, and I'm not knocking seminary. Seminary is great. Uh, I, I love what I learned there, but it is what you make it. Yeah, well, it's like any any field of education. You can go through it and come out with not much more useful information than you went in with, as long as you know how to pass the courses. I mean, we're, oh, yeah. Christian schools are not exempt from that. Oh, yeah. And just a side note, if for anybody who's thinking about seminary, be sure and talk to people who've gone to seminary. Make sure it really fits into your grand scheme and calling of life that it's not just something you're doing to be prestigious or whatever you might think it, it lends to you. And if it, you do decide to go to seminary, be sure and go to an accredited school. Okay, that's my one tip. Don't, <laughs> don't just go to the first place that says, hey, I'm a Christian college. Not all of them are equal. So anyhow. Uh, I get a lot of questions on that. That's the reason why I thought I'd throw it out there. So, Second Samuel 21, because <laughs> Nathan knows where I can go far afield on that topic. Um, we were talking, uh, in, starting with verse 16, we've got this uh, account of David's men and their battles with the Philistines, specifically with giants. And basically, we had ended up with this um, account of a giant. We went through, you know, kind of how he's described. We ended with the fact that he said he thought to kill David. So there seems to be this active moment where this giant is attempting to kill David, and it's not Goliath. It's a different giant. And the person who steps up to save him is Abishai. So I'm going to start reading in verse 17. It says, But Abishai, the son of Zuriah, came to his, uh, his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So King David, mighty King David, who had killed Goliath with nothing more than a slingshot, or not a slingshot, a sling, um, two different things. Anyway, he needs to be saved, and he needs to be saved by Abishai, his nephew, somebody younger than him, somebody less experienced than him. This is not the image we expect to have from David. and. This particular incident is actually left out of Chronicles because it doesn't suit that that uh, invincible image of David that Chronicles had worked so hard to craft. It, it, so this this particular story just it's not to be found, and we shouldn't be surprised that it's Abishai that that comes to David's aid. I mean, he's Joab's brother. Joab and Abishai, they have been there at David's side for so long. They're the ones who pick up the pieces. They're the ones that make sure that everything works. And, um, you know, throughout Samuel, they've been David's protectors, not just from outside forces and threats, but also protecting David from himself occasionally. And so we're not shocked to see him. And, of course, Abishai, every time we do encounter him, he's he's killing someone or wants to kill someone. So, you know, finally he gets his day in the sun, if you will, and it's against the giant nonetheless. So we have this very interesting phrase at the end of this verse that um, David's not to go out with his 
men, lest he quench the lamp of Israel. Now, Zamora read this as an indication that at this point, David is more of a figurehead leader, that you know, he's, he's not the warrior king anymore, that he has now reached that point for just the status and having the title. It's kind of what gives him the respect. And the, the sentiment obviously mirrors what we saw in 2 Samuel 18.3, and I'll just read that verse because you've probably slept since then. It says, but the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will come after us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. So we have different words. You know, it's not the same language, but the sentiment is the same. The, mm-hmm. the men themselves aren't as important as the king who, who has become emblematic of Israel's power and might. Mm-hmm. Now, so the, the sages see this as uh, actually connecting us back to that moment because the sentiment is so much the same. And that moment, if you remember, is right after Absalom's rebellion and when David's getting ready to um, take, the, um, take Jerusalem back. But we don't have that phrase. Matter of fact, this is the only place we have that phrase, lamp of Israel, anywhere in the Bible. And the way the, the rabbis kind of interpreted that was that David, because of his divine merit and favor, that he actually, like a light sheds, like a lamp sheds light over a room, his merit and favor was kind of shown out over all the nation. And that's the reason why the nation could be protected from God, because the king was so favored by God. And so, which makes sense, because when you go back to what Samuel was saying about kings, and he, he talks to the people and says, you know, if your king does these things, then you're going to be okay. And not just the king, but the people too, but specifically the king needs to be living out the calling and the destiny that's been placed on Israel. If the king fails to do this, then the nation's going to suffer. And so the idea that you have to protect the king and you want to keep a king who has God's, you know, undisputed favor in his life as being part of the the protection plan for Israel's not only their prosperity, but also their longevity as a nation. So I think one of the things that could happen here is, you know, that really reads as a complete sentence, a statement that we really don't need to go into that much. But if you really stop to think about this, this is a fascinating statement. And it, it, I got to, to kind of just pondering what it meant in terms of the people's attitudes, because you need to remember um, back at the beginning of why Israel wanted a king. They, they gave a job description for their king. They wanted a king who would judge us like all nations. This is 1 Samuel 8, go out before us and fight our battles. This is what they wanted a king to do. David can no longer do that, it, whether he's incapable or he's not being allowed to by his men, David no longer fits the job description of a king according to the people of Israel. So up to this point, the, the kings of the nations were warrior kings. And yes, they were representatives of gods or the gods, depending on which nation we're talking about. But they were also able to fight. That's one of the, the ways you became a king. If you couldn't fight, you didn't get to be a king. And, you know, Israel was not looking necessarily for a divine representative in a king. They had that. that They had that in the form of prophets and priests. They didn't need that. The king was supposed to be a warrior. Mm. That's all they want. And so the fact that the people have accepted the king, David as king, 
which, by the way, they did on the basis of David being that warrior. That's in 2 Samuel 5, 2. They said, you're the one who let us out. And you're the one who let us back in. In other words, you're a successful warrior. This is why we'll, uh, we will accept you. Now we've come full circle where the people are realizing they need this king who can serve as a representative of God, who can function in that role. So we've gone from a total rejection of the judge slash prophet leader that we saw in Judges and said, we don't want that anymore, to the people now saying the king needs to be like that person in order to fulfill this role within Israel. And that's really interesting that the attitudes have shifted so much. We don't just need a warrior. We need a spiritual leader. Because, like I said, that's, that was not where they were whenever they looked for Saul. Mm-hmm. Because Saul was never the great spiritual leader that they needed. And that was part of Samuel's critique. And that's the reason why the people needed Saul and Samuel together. And now David here, he combines both of those things. So I, I, just, I thought that was really interesting. That took, you know, basically David's time in, on the throne to, to bring about that change. But that's going to kind of define what we're looking at and the lens we should view future kings of Israel through. Now, the next three battles, which are recorded in Chronicles, um, they're kind of interesting. They may or may not have happened in a single war against the Philistines. Most likely it was over several battles, uh, at least several, uh, definitely several battles, maybe several wars. And they were just all put together in the same section because they have this uh, unifying theme of David's mighty men killing giants, killing the Rapha. And so verse 18 picks up with, after this, there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob and Sebekai, the Hushathite, I love, I love it whenever you get those syllables all together. Hushathite <laughs> struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants or the Rapha. So again, we have that definite article. We talked about this last week, that definite article connected with Rapha. So it's not a proper name of an individual. This is not a son of an individual. This is part of a collective. Uh, we talked about, Nathan gave us that great example of the tribes, the Native American tribes in America, the Cherokee, the Creek, the, the Sioux. We have all that um, kind of language that we still use. And then we have it, we're, it's at Gob, Job, what, it kind of depends on who, who reads it. Mm-hmm. This is the only place we have the city mentioned. It's only in connection with these events, which are retold in Chronicles. So we have it here, then again in Chronicles. Uh, Sebekai. He's only mentioned here and then in the parallel passages again in Chronicles. That's Chronicles 20, 1 Chronicles 20, if you want to look it up. There's two other lists of David's mighty men in uh, 1 Chronicles 11 and 27. He's mentioned there. Um, However, he is probably also included in the list that we saw earlier, which was in 2 Samuel um, uh, 23, which has Mebunai, the Hushathite. it's like, wait a minute, that's two completely different names. How in the world did you get here? Okay, so we've talked about problems with the text before. So, and I talked about how you can often see these problems if you're familiar with the language. And you can really pick out, you know, where there's a typographical error, where there's a, some kind of scribal mistake that occurred. And this is one of those places where you can definitely tell there was an issue with the scribe who wrote down this particular um, List in 2 Samuel 23. 
and it was most likely sloppy handwriting or a damaged manuscript that led to us having two different names for who was almost 99.99% the same person. So uh, basically in Hebrew, the, the ket uh, in Sebekai can look like a noon, and then the samek can look like a mem. And if you know your Hebrew alphabet, you can look those up if you don't, and you can see how close together they are. They're so similar. You know, it's like a Q and an R. It's like a D and an O. It, if you've got somebody who's got sloppy handwriting, you're going to have a hard time differentiating, differentiating those letters in English. Mm. And it's the same thing. Every alphabet has this problem. It, it's not a big deal. Um, but then we also have this designation of the Hushathite. The only Hushathite we have in the text is Sebekai. And then we have this other guy, Mebunai. And they're the only ones who, who are referred to by that. So in, since we have similar list and we have this, the name consistent in all of them except for one, and then in this, another list that's also very similar, and we have this random weird name who is also the Hushathite, it makes sense that this is just, it, it, it's a typo. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not a big deal. And that's the reason why, you know, people don't get upset about it. But it's probably a typo that went back to very, very early manuscripts, which also makes sense when you think about, you know, you don't have climate-controlled storage facilities. You can't, you know, have humidity-controlled storage facilities. You don't have acid-free paper and inks and, you know, all these things that we take for granted. And then you've got, you know, scrolls being passed around. You've got, you know, people who may or may not wash their hands. Mm -hmm. All of these factors that play in. I mean, most of my books, I mean, let's just be real. Most of my books have coffee stains in them. Um, Basically, a book doesn't belong to me until it's been baptized with coffee. Uh, you can tell where I've been, you know, where I've done the most reading and research within a particular book because the pages are a little flared and warped and maybe there's fingerprints on them because uh, I got in a hurry and I didn't take time to wash my hands when I was eating while I was studying. Um, there's a few Cheeto prints on some of the pages of my books. <laughs> uh, that happens. So, you know, people are still people. That's the, the main thing. And so, um, you know, there's no reason to think, oh, this is a gotcha moment, or this is uh, you know, two different people. This is one of those times where, obviously, it would have actually made sense if somebody who said, oh, you know what, this is the same guy, let's just be consistent with the names. But they didn't do that. And this is another reason why I think that the mistakes actually prove the trustworthy nature of the Bible. Because if somebody had wanted to try to you know, smooth out all the kinks. They could have, with very good reason, very good justification at this point. Instead, they said, hey, this is what our oldest manuscripts say. And commentators, as far back as we have documented, most of them believe that this is the same person. So this is not something that has just happened in the last, you know, 2,000 years. This is something that has been going on even prior to the life of Jesus, where commentators said, probably the same guy. Most, most likely the same guy, but that's not what the manuscript has. So that's not, we're not going to change anything. We're going to stay true to the manuscripts we have. Right. So I, that's why when people go, oh, there's mistakes. I, I'm like, well, let's talk about what they are. And, and to me, like I said, that just, 
it would have been so easy to take out that one, you know, little stone that they think they have to throw at us. So who is a Hushathite? Uh, what, what makes a person a Hushathite? That is someone from uh, a region southwest of Bethlehem, uh, which makes sense because in 1 Chronicles 4.4, 4, we learn that Ezer fathered Husha. And Ezer is from the tribe of Judah, as is David, and David's city, of course, is Bethlehem. So, um, you know, he's somebody who David would have known for a very long time is basically what we're looking at. He's probably, you know, very well could have been related to David. They're from mm -hmm. the same tribe. Uh, they're from the same geographic, basic location. So um, much like Abishai and Joab were nephews, I wouldn't be surprised if we ever got to see, you know, like a true family tree. Um, and actually, it maybe it's in the, the genealogies. I just haven't taken time to study it out. But, you know, he's a cousin or a second cousin. That, that's totally within the realm of possibility and very likely. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's a fun little, you, you know, to me, that's a, just a good illustration of how the translation process that we were talking about earlier, why it works. Now, here's where it gets really sticky. It's this next, um, next verse. It's verse 19. Um, this is the kind of thing that a lot of Sunday school teachers really hope that their students don't notice, because if you ask about this, so like your know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade Sunday school class, the teacher's going to get really upset and flustered. Mm -hmm. I know the reason why this is a big problem. I'm convinced that this is the reason that it just bothers everybody is because it messes with your flannel graphs. Okay. If it didn't mess with your flannel graphs or your veggie tails, you probably just sail right by it and go, yeah, whatever. Um, this is a problem that doesn't seem to be as easily answered. It doesn't seem just to be a typo or some kind of scribal error. There seems to be a major problem with the text. So we're going to read verse 19. Um, by the way, Danny McBee, uh, we're going to talk about this specifically for him. He's a former student who contacted me recently and well, it's been a while back, but he was wanting to know about this passage in particular. So I hope he's listening. Um, verse 19, it says, And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jeri or Jerim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So now we all want to go, this can't possibly be true. You know, in 1 Samuel 17, it's David who killed Goliath, the Gittite. David, who killed the giant with the spear, whose shaft was like a weaver's beam. What in the world is going on here? Yeah, because they're very specific <laughs> about the identity of the giant. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about some possible uh, solutions. So Zamora, let's just, okay, this is how big of an issue this is. Zamora says, this statement has caused endless controversy. Alter, this is one of the most famous contradictions in the book of Samuel. Bergen. Easily the most controversial verse in this entire uh, section. So, uh, you know, let the games begin because uh, this is not new to scholars. You aren't going to surprise somebody who knows the Bible by going, aha, gotcha. Uh, we know, we're aware. It, it's something that most of us have dealt with. So I'm going to like just go through the possible solutions and throw everything at the wall and let y'all decide what sticks. Yeah, because I, so. I have no idea on this one, like how to even, <laughs> I mean, I, I know that it's, it doesn't affect the overall overarching message of the Bible. It's just mm -hmm. 
something that doesn't line up the way we think it should. So I'll, but yeah, I'll let you go for it. Yeah, it, it's problematic. So Zamora, uh, of course, you know, we, we like his work. Um, he points us to an answer, which he, which is a really great source for an answer. It's First Chronicles 25. And let me read you what that verse says. It says, and there was again war with the Philistines, and the Hanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lahmi, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was a weaver's beam. So therefore, according to this solution, we've got a simple scribal error again. I mean, it, I know it doesn't seem like that. It's basically the scribe left out this phrase, Lahmi, the, the brother of Goliath the Gittite. So he, he forgot to kill connect the fact that there is a brother who is got a different name, a completely different name than Goliath. Okay. Now, um, we've seen this before in Samuel. This is not the first time. We've talked about it in previous episodes where a scribe is writing along, he skips over a phrase, we can go to another passage in Chronicles or even another passage in Samuel and see where that phrase got skipped. And because it got skipped, it, it kind of changed the reading of the verse. Or maybe we went to the Septuagint, so the Masoretic, and we saw where the, Maser, where the Septuagint filled in and made it make more sense. It, I like this solution, okay? This is my favorite solution. And I'm just putting it out there first. I'm going to let you know that if I'm going to choose a solution, this is the one I'm going with for a couple of reasons. Number one, we've seen it before in Samuel. We know it happens. Number two, we have other biblical texts to explain what could have happened. It's as easy as comparing the Bible to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I like that. There's no incredible mental gymnastics required here. We really can apply Occam's razor, which often in translation work, that is our friend. Mm -hmm. It's a great guide. So if I'm going to choose one, I'm going to go with this and I'm going to say, yeah, th there was a scribe who, who messed it up. And the only reason I can think of, of for rejecting that idea is you are so dedicated to the idea of biblical inerrancy. And I'm not talking about inerrancy as it's talked about in academic circles. I'm talking about inerrancy as it's taught in most churches today. And so many churches today. I have heard that there is absolutely no flaws in any of the text and any of the Bibles we possess. I mean, which obviously can be debunked in like five seconds. I yeah, heard. Go ahead. A, I heard a weird one the <laughs> other day. Okay, so you can talk about inerrancy that there's no errors in the Bible. That every word in the Bible is 100 percent true. Mm -hmm. So if you can remind me, I don't know exactly where the passage is, but there were guys talking about um, when Paul, speaking in the Areopagus, where he mm -hmm. quotes the pagan poets. Mm -hmm. Now, number one, okay, it was kind of funny to me that they were like, well, how, how is it that Paul knew the work of the pagan poets? And I'm like, well, he lived in that culture. You how know, did we know the lines from a Marvel movie? That, that's exactly. <laughs> I mean, not the Marvel movie, but it's like, you know, everyone knows quotes from Monty Python. Right. You know, it's, it, it's been in the culture. And what was funny to me is when they said, yeah, so I, I had to like stop and I, I mean, I was working with power tools, so I had to stop and refocus because <laughs> I didn't want to drill through my finger or anything. And, um, 
the the guy says, "Yeah, here he, Paul quotes a, a these pagan poets and and basically brings their work into the inerrancy of the Bible." And I'm like going, "But uh, huh? Does that statement even make sense?" Quotes the pagan poets and then makes their words inerrant by bringing them into the Bible. I'm like, that is so weird to even think of it that way. I think you just gave me an aneurysm. I, um, I mean, seriously, is that not one of the strangest statements you've ever heard about that passage? It it really is. And and we're getting ready to go into the next chapter in Samuel. Paul actually quotes from some Ugaritic sources. Does that mean the Ugaritic sources are inerrant? Right, right. Well, where, and it's... where do we draw that line? <laughs> I mean, okay, this is where you take a concept too far. Well, There's exactly. Balance. <laughs> exactly. And and I mean and by that logic, you can make that you can just say, well, every statement in the Bible is now inerrant and true. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I mm-hmm. can then say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and make that my uh, theology. If yeah. we really want to go out on that. Uh, it, it's so, it's taking the concept of inerrancy too far in, in a way yeah. that it, and I, I personally like the term infallible when we're talking about the Bible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than inerrant because it's a, a little bit easier to 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 break that down and it's just when yeah. you say inerrancy then then you put in that uh, as heiser likes to call it the x-files view of things or the, this auto writing view of how the bible got here and whenever we put the bible in that category we make ourselves vulnerable to critique and, and right. because, I mean, seriously, we're, we're talking about God being all powerful, but he can't even take over a human body correctly enough to make it right the right thing. I <laughs> mean, can turn us into a copy machine. I mean. That's what it, that's what it breaks down to whenever you're putting that kind of critique or that, that l- emphasis on, la- on the Bible completely lacking errors. Well, and that's where you get into this crazy idea that the only trustworthy translation is the King James only. You know, you've got a, a, you know, Jesus and his apostles only spoke good King James English and then was translated back into the Greek, which is somehow messed up. I have literally encountered people who said people who studied the Hebrew and Greek and tried to impose those views on the Bible, they're speaking of the King James here, are actually trying to, uh, how do they put it? trying to promote their liberal agenda. No, I've, I've seen that. I actually, I have actually seen someone go so far as to state that the king, I'm going to wait till you're done drinking your coffee there. Um, Sorry. The, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I didn't want to, I don't want to have to buy a new mic. The, um, okay. I actually uh, saw someone said the King James Bible is what exists in heaven and God allowed the, writers to translate it into Greek and Hebrew when they wrote it. I've seen that. I've seen people make that statement. I've <laughs> and it I don't even know how you even get I mean you you have to okay. just completely not understand how the world and history 
works and you have to completely misunderstand almost everything written in the Bible. I think that's how you get there. This is evidence that God loves people way more than my little human heart is capable of. And he tolerates so much stupidity in his name. We should just be eternally grateful. Uh, I mean, seriously, if that doesn't make you just just profoundly um, joyous about God's grace and mercy, I, I don't know what would. I mean, <sighs> come on, people. <laughs> Come on. Well, I'm pretty God sure. loves people. He has invited us to participate in this process. Don't abuse the privilege. I right. Mean, right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and uh, part of me, uh, you know, I I part of me is reluctant to to make fun of stuff like that cuz I I really hate just making fun of things that people don't understand, but this one is yeah. like it, it's beyond the pale in my opinion, uh, but it's but this is why it's so important we we talk about these things because people become so entrenched in those ideas why because they've seen i'll tell you why i i've seen this i've seen this over and over again because you know we had that homeschooling group and and culture that we came out of where this kind of thing was taught and then the kids grow up and they read a book and they realize that it's wrong Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. they lose their faith and so that causes some people to really double down on that commitment of this idea of inerrancy beyond what it should be. Now, you know, whether the original manuscripts were inerrant or not, that's a whole other topic. That's something we can't answer. No one's going to be answered because we don't have them here. Right. But so they double down this idea of inerrancy because they think they're defending their faith and other people's faith. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't work, guys. I've seen it happen over and over again that that kind of approach actually leads to more people's faith being damaged than just telling the freaking truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we can't tell the truth about God's word, we shouldn't be able to tell the truth about anything. Why would we tell the truth about anything? We've lost our integrity, our credibility. So just tell the truth. Hey, you know what? There's mistakes. There's typos. There's scribal, uh, scribal insertions. We, we can have all of these things. But the truth is the theology, the application, the lessons that we need to know are still intact. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Okay, that's that's miraculous. And so let's celebrate the things that God actually did do instead of, instead of saying what you did, what He did wasn't good enough. Right. I mean, if you want to, you know, flip it around and get real technical. So now that you got my blood pressure up, let's offer talk about the second option. That's well, yeah, some I, more. I thought you know we're we're a little into the the second half hour of the show. I thought I'd make sure everyone was awake. <laughs> I am. Uh, so yeah. So Zamora offers us a section, a second option. Um, and he says, and I've heard this several places. It's not just Zamora. So, um, but he's who I'm drawing from that Goliath is a, a common name and that it's a name that was, uh, so common that maybe it had some different variations, but it's all built on the same root. Remember in ancient Hebrew and a lot of ancient Semitic languages, you just had the consonants. You didn't have the the vowels, mm-hmm. and so you could have twenty different names that had the same. I don't know if that's mathematically correct or not, but anyway, you could have different names that had the same consonants but with different vowels. Well, it, um, and, and to kind of play off that idea, I mean, we we've been um, we've been around some families, some old money families from the deep south uh, that have family <laughs> names that that are apparently more important than the family. 
<laughs> no, and and so you have a son who's named such and such the third, and then that son dies. Well, then the next son just gets named such and such the third. Mm-hmm. Be- mm-hmm. It, it, so I mean, there's a possibility, uh, you know, yeah. that that maybe uh there was a father Goliath and a son Goliath, or maybe a second son to a <laughs> second son to replace. I I mean that's that's not at all. Uh, I mean, it's it's not impossible. I mean, I'm not sure how much I buy that. But again, we've seen this kind of thing in practice in in right. in families that are not like ancient. <laughs> that it's well, I mean, how many men in our family were named Albert? I mean, right. you are uh, my grandson is my, our dad, grandfather, great grandfather. Anyway, so yeah, we we've got it. Definitely happens, and we also have. Um, Kind of to support that theory, we have some Philistine inscriptions. As a matter of fact, some of the earliest Philistine, uh, Philistine inscriptions we have have a name with those letters that form the word Goliath, and it dates from this time period. So mm-hmm. it evidently was not an uncommon name. And so, um, you know, there's a good possibility, too, that, that basically, you know, Goliath became a byword in the Hebrew culture for anyone who was from the Rephaim who was a descendant of the Rafa. It's, it's not impossible. And it, it, and it is also likely, I mean, we've got Akish being uh, the, uh, the king, and we talked about in previous episodes how that could either be a king or a personal name or a title. You know, it happens, and we've got documentation of it happening in other areas. Now, I do have an issue with the solution. And uh, my issue basically is that uh, this is... Uh, Let's see. Make sure I got my <laughs> got my uh, my verses here. So we we have these names that are going on in the the this passage, and basically three of the four uh, giants have personal names. They they aren't referred to by a title. So we've got the the personal names that are going on, and since we have the personal uh, names happening. With three of the four, the other one's just not identified by any name. Mm-hmm. It would seem weird that we would use a title for one and then personal names for the rest. Right. That that doesn't seem consistent with for me. Um, so you know, we've got Saf, we've got Ishbiba Nob, um, we've got uh Goliath. So you why why wouldn't we have this? Now the other problem I, I do have with this issue too is it's kind of it would be manipulative and deceptive on the right of a on the part of a writer or editor to to change this, mm-hmm. and I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that there is a a deliberate change in the in the text. I think we've shown and we've demonstrated how translators have actually gone out of their way to preserve even the mistakes of the text as they were written and received in order to to transmit it with integrity. And so it's not in keeping with what we know about the writers of the Bible and have seen them consistently do throughout even Samuel, which is so full of these textual problems. Um, It's not in keeping with Samuel, the book as a whole. Um, The book of Samuel never goes out of its way to elevate David above who he was. Matter of fact, the writer of Samuel has not been kind to David on a number of counts. He's actually shown David's flaws with a glaring spotlight and magnifying glass so that you don't miss 
just what's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Now, if this was Chronicles, then we might have a, a, a case to be made for that. But in Chronicles, they actually have a different solution, as we discussed. So, yes, and I should note that we've talked about how these last four chapters were added to the text later. They probably weren't part of the original manuscript. But it's not in keeping with the original manuscript or in keeping with these four chapters together. So it would just be really weird for them to add this at this point in time. Now, Bergen actually has several options in his book. He even gave a nice little handy table that would uh, let you have easy comparisons. I like tables and charts. Mm -hmm. They're my friends. So uh, the first one is, it's a true contradiction that 2 Samuel 2, 21 uh, 19, this verse that we just looked at, it preserves the original text. Second Samuel 1750 was then added later in order to elevate David, that you know, they would give the victory to David. Again, mm-hmm. don't like that. That's deceptive. That's blatant manipulation. So I, I don't care for that. His second option, again, it's a true contradiction that first uh, Chronicles 25 preserves the original text. But this is a careless mistake. So basically what Samora was said, you know, the, the writer just left out that phrase uh, that this is the brother of Goliath. Yeah. Um, the third is as a seeming contradiction, which is it's not really a contradiction. It just is a contradiction if you don't know the idioms of the language. So Goliath is more of a title or there's two giants from Gath that um, say, have the same name or Elhanan is another name for David. Now. This is not a solution that's original to Bergman. This actually goes back. You can find the solution proposed in the Talmud and the Targums, and it's also cited by Rashi. So it's a solution that's been around forever. Now, if you look at the components of Elchanan, um, you get this word that's a combination of Elchanan, which Elchanan means God has graced him. So they took it to mean that this is the one that God has graced. And who has God graced more than David? So therefore, it has to be another name for David. I think this is taking it too far. But one of the really interesting things, and I haven't brought this up before because I wanted to be careful not to get too sidetracked. I know, imagine that. There is this whole mythology in the Talmud and the Targums about different names for David. And that there are actually several different names for David, or this is what they claim. They claim there are several different names for David within the book of Samuel. Uh, one of those examples would be Adriel the Mahalathite. And if you remember that name, that's back in 1 Samuel 18, 18. Remember, Saul had offered Merab, his oldest daughter, to David as a bride. That didn't go through. And it says she goes on and marries Adriel. Now, Adriel, the name means my help is God or flock of God. And so the rabbi said, well, this, this has got to refer to David because, you know, he's a shepherd king. So if we're talking about flocks and herds and God helping someone take care of flocks and herds, it's got to be him, right? And I, I've heard that there's actually up to seven different names for David in Samuel. Again, I think that's pushing it too far. I, I think that's a little wishful thinking on the part of the, the rabbis trying to to elevate David. Remember, they, they really, really want David to be this epitome of goodness and justice and God's grace and favor embodied in this man. So they, they really go out of the way sometimes to make sure that 
every kind of little um, claim to fame or everything that's worthy of celebration in any character in Samuel kind of gets attributed to David as a byproduct, mm-hmm. uh, if it, not directly. So, you know, this is something that I think we've got to be very careful not to do when we read the Bible is to, to reach and to add to the story in such a way that we wind up actually doing damage or violence to the scripture. And so we need to be sure and be very, very respectful of what the scripture does say. And I know we talk a little bit about, we, we talk a lot about possibilities within the text, but we, we want to be very careful to, to delineate what is a true possibility and what's just us playing around with ideas. Mm-hmm. And I love playing around with ideas. Don't get me wrong. That's one of the reasons why I like the Talmud. I love the Targums because I love those ideas because they make me stop and think about scripture in a different way. But we need to be careful uh, to, to be respectful of those boundaries. So, um, you know, I think that this is also another time when we could actually say that there would be justification for translators to actually quote unquote meddle with the text to, to say, Hey, let's add that phrase that was left out and make it read correctly so that people won't be confused. Instead, translators and Bible publication companies throughout the ages have chosen to maintain this, what I think is a mistake in order to show integrity with their work. This is huge. And once again, why we should be trusting our Bible and trusting the people who are working hard to make sure we get the Bible to us in a way we can understand. So we, there's so many reasons not to be scared of these contradictions. So anyhow, have we like driven that home enough? <laughs> so. I, I, I think we're, we're standing pretty solid on that point. I mean, that. <laughs> I, it's it's one of those things that I mean we we don't hear about it a lot, so we might as well mention it and make sure that we're we're not scaring people away. With we're trying to say we do respect the Bible for what it is and what it says. Yeah, I I trust God with what He's done. So you're crazy. So verse twenty, there was again a war at Gath, <laughs> where there was a man with great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and twenty four in number, and he descended from the giants. So we have this um, the, the the terrible nature of this particular giant is not expressed in uh, weaponry or armor. It's in the fact that he's got these extra digits. Um, pretty interesting there. That's what's supposed to. Uh, is supposed to impress us. I do know that uh, over on Answers to Giant Questions that there has been some talk about, did all the giants have six fingers and six toes? I'm going to let Tim and Chris run with that one. Verse 21, and he taunted Israel. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So the giant taunts Israel. David's nephew, another one, this time from a brother, not from his sister, kills him. Um, And we again have echoes of Goliath even in this story because we have another giant taunting Israel, uh, just like Goliath did. Mm -hmm. And this time the giant's unnamed. We don't know who it is. We just know who killed him. And it's kind of refreshing to see some of David's brothers show back up in the story. Now the rabbis say that this is uh, included specifically to demonstrate that David's brothers were just as fierce of warriors as he was, that the whole family was actually something to be afraid of, which wouldn't be surprising because you've got to remember 
David was the least impressive of all of Jesse's sons. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Yeah. Well, and I also, I also think it's kind of uh, parallels a point that often gets overlooked. Um, a lot of times we get so much focus on the main characters of the Bible um, that we often forget that they were not selected to the exclusion of others, that this they were actually point. selected for the inclusion of others into promises. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. look at uh, Jacob and Esau, Jacob was included, but at the end you see they're reconciled and mm -hmm. that Esau's descendants are, you know, they're uh, as Edom. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, when, when Israel goes uh, back into the, the promised land, God tells leave them, that space leave, alone. leave them alone. They're, they're family. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that we often forget. Um, so I think we kind of have that paralleling, you know, the provision was not just for Jacob. It was also for Esau. It was for the whole family. Yeah, but only one person, you know, there's only room for one king and one leader on these things. Well, and that's the thing. David's role as a king is to create a place, is to make the nation so unified that the rest of the world can actually come to Israel. They can hear about Israel and receive the things that Israel is teaching and doing in order to be directed back to the God of Israel because he is the true God, the God of the universe. It was never for exclusion. And we're actually going to, when we get into kings, we're going to see how this kind of exclusionary mentality where, you know, I'm so special and nobody else can do what I can do ends up getting Israel into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And it, it's called the Babylonian exile. And so, you know, this idea that only one person is so marvelous that they're the only ones who are capable or worthy of serving God, you know, that's hubris. Mm -hmm. That, that, that's just, and Unfortunately, I've seen that in Christians who look at me, I'm so humble, and this is why you got to do what I told you, tell you to do. Yeah, um, it's like, like Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy. I, too, am exceedingly humble. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, was the and, old and we know that quote because we we're part of the culture. Um, <laughs> to tie it back to Paul. I told um, you it was a Marvel movie quote. Uh, so. <laughs> But, okay, so we won't get off on another rant. We're going to go ahead. Verse 22 says, And the four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hands of his servants. So, okay. Even though David did not actively participate in the death of those last giants, it's still attributed to David. Their, their deaths are still attributed to David. Why? Because he's the king. What the servants do on behalf of the king is attributed to the king. So this is the reason why it says that, the, you know, they fell at the hand of David. Why? Because David's the one that said, go out there and kick some giant butt. I mean, mm -hmm. th that's what, it, it's how simple it is. And, and of course, the servants were his mighty men. Who were they fighting for? They're fighting for David. Why? Because they love David and they're loyal to David to the point of dying for him. And mm. they have demonstrated that over and over again. We can't quench the, the lamp of Israel. If 10,000 of us fall, no one cares. We've got to keep you alive. So, um, you know, this is why we, we have these, these stories is to show David's not the only giant killer in Israel. 
And that's crazy whenever you think about it, because that's not how we've been taught the story. We've been taught that David is like this really unique person. No, he's not. He's part of a culture that actually teaches and trains people how to kill David, kill, kill giants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's a huge shift in the way we view this. Uh, and I, I love that shift. And so um, maybe uh, we'll let Tim and Chris uh, play with that. So we're getting close to the end of time. So we're going to wrap up with a little rabbinic lore and we'll, then we'll move into uh, next week. We'll talk about the, remember this is still our chiasm. So this is going to play off the passage in second uh, Samuel 23. And I actually thought, hold on. I thought okay. I actually saw a great representation. So we are talking about how to explain the chiasm. We do okay. similar things like this in our modern inter- entertainment. And I know we're kind of, this is kind of, this example is kind of late in the game because we've already explained it a couple times. But if you think about the Marvel movies, the the first one was was Iron Man, and it it and it ends with Tony saying, "I am Iron Man," and then Tony's story arc wraps up with him saying, "I am Iron Man," but it has a different meaning by the time you get to the end. And it, and it points you back to his whole journey. And so we do these things in movies. We, it may not always be as structured, but we mm-hmm. have those things. We have, we have that thing that has a, a, a certain meaning at the beginning, certain meaning at the end. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a, I, I thought that was a really interesting example when I was reading some article about the Marvel films. No, that's a- that's a really good, it is a good example. And that's the reason why I like drawing off of things that people know. I'm actually watching French. And since you brought it up, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what they're doing with the season I'm on. And I know a lot of people haven't watched French, so I'm not going to give it away. I, I'm actually enjoying uh, rewatching it. But they do the same thing where the, the beginning and the end are the same. Mm-hmm. But what they mean in those moments are, are, are different. So yeah, they're different because of the, the journey the characters have been on. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, fun, fun story. Uh, if you like sci-fi and I, and I do like, obviously we like sci-fi because it's another one of those things that makes you think. So, well, I, mean, um, <laughs> I, I don't know hardly any other genre that allows you to talk about philosophy, current events, um, political satire in a, in such a way mm-hmm. as, as, as sci-fi, because you, you, you can get away with anything. I mean, think of how much you how can many... suspend the rules. Yeah, when you need think, to. yeah, and think of how many things Star Trek snuck by the censors in the '60s <laughs> that they talked about that it had been had it been like a tried to tell it in a modern story, it just Wouldn't would have not worked. have worked. Would not have worked. Yeah. So yeah, that that's pretty cool. And and I do think I I think sci-fi. I've said this before. is kind of the mythology of our day. And sometimes, since I'm getting into Talmud, and this is going to tie back in with what I'm getting ready to talk about, some of the Talmud and rabbinic lore, the Agadah, the you kind of have that same kind of suspension of rules when you need to in order to further the plot along, but they still try to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. And they actually do the same thing here with this story, and it's really kind of interesting. So basically the claim is, if you go back to Ruth and you remember the part in, the, part in their story where 
uh, they're starting to come back to Bethlehem and it's Ruth and it's Orpha and it's Naomi. They're all together. And mm-hmm. Naomi's like, you know, guys, there's no more sons. Even if I have sons now, you're going to be too old to have kids by the time they're grown. You know, just go back to your families. And of course, Orpha goes back and, and Ruth stays with Naomi. And we get that really famous uh, passage that's read at weddings for some odd reason. But anyway, um, the rabbis, they didn't like the ending of the story. So they actually said, hey, let's, let's conclude the story here in 2 Samuel. And, and the way they did that is they said that when Orpah went back to Moab and she became involved in idolatry and she became promiscuous and she was doing all these things that were completely heinous to all the, the um, good Jewish people and would have been heinous to Ruth, who has now become a Jew through the, her, her uh, committed loyalty to Naomi. And because of, her sin was so great that the children she gave birth to were also these great giants from Gath. And that they were the ones who now must confront, be confronted by Ruth's descendants. And so the, the two women meet up face to face again. This time there's there's not any kind of you know sorrowful parting. There's actually a, a throwdown between the two descendants because now Ruth's children, as in David and you know, David's nephews, they now kill the giants that were born of Orpah. Mm-hmm. So once again, we have that really interesting um, completion of the story because, you know, it's like the rabbis had this really compulsive urge to actually complete every story even more fully than what the Bible may have completed it. And, you know, and I, th- I think it's a fun story. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's a kind of an interesting uh, what if, maybe, could be, um, I highly doubt it. I don't think that's it, what happened. Um, we have no evidence that that's what happened, either within the scripture or without. But the, the thing is, what we need to, to really think about is, um, you know, do these kinds of stories take things too far? Right. And, and, and how do we make that delineation between the fun, well, what if, and this is scripture? And, you know, if we think that we're immune to this as modern readers of the Bible, we really need to stop and think about our own pet theologies and really stop and think about things that we hold dear and ask ourselves, can this be illustrated either from a direct support of the Bible or the thematic support from the Bible within the narratives? And if you can't find evidence for your pet theology in those places, then it's no better than these stories about giants and Orpah and Ruth that the rabbis were talking about. So I I want to use these not to say, oh, well, this is how it happened, but as a cautionary tale, Mm -hmm. as, you know, don't think you're better than anybody who lived back then, because I guarantee you, I don't care how many systematic theology books you have on your shelf, and I don't care how many big names are on them, you aren't any, they're no more important than the rabbis who were so respected by the Jews. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'll leave it at that and I'll let everybody plug in names and ideas as they wish. So (laughs) fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I think that seems like a good place to break and we will be back next week with, uh, whatever happens next. Uh, Yeah, 23 verses eight through 39. We'll be talking some more about David's mighty men and, uh, 
and don't worry for anybody who's already read that passage, by the way, it's a whole list of names and ranks and birthplaces, and it's kind of boring. We're, we're going to hit some high points and kind of fly through that part. Uh, so. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but hey, that being said, um, we, uh, be part of the conversation. We've had a couple different people reach out to us uh, with some different information and, and some questions, and we are uh, looking at, re- uh, at doing some research on some of those things. And uh, we want to include your your feedback. And uh, so hit us up, Raven Creek SC, on all the social media, RavenCreekSC.com's website. Uh, you can get in touch with us there, and we look forward to hearing from you. And, you know, let's keep the conversation interesting. Uh, I love it. I'm, I, I love hearing from everyone uh, because <laughs> it keeps us in line and it helps us think better about Scripture. That's what Absolutely. we're all supposed to do anyway, right? Hopefully. (laughs) Well, that being said, everyone have a great week and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. This is the Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts.